Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that knows every day is Labor Day. Today we have Zoe, Laura, and Walida. Since this episode is going to be coming out... Wait, 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 sorry. What? Yes? I I just want to acknowledge that... I feel like there were so many episodes for a while that was this trio, and it hasn't been like this in a while. Really? I guess you're right, yeah. Yeah. So I'm just yeah. like, I just want to acknowledge that I love you guys, and I love recording with you guys. I think this is going to be such a good episode. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. I think so, too. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think I've been on with Walia in a while. Anyway, didn't mean to interrupt your lovely intro. I am just happy to be talking with my girls. I thought you were going to stop me to be like something just went terrible with the like recording or something like stop talking. But you were like, I just need you to stop so I can tell you how much I love you before you keep talking. (laughs) Exactly. Right. That's exactly right. So. I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So. Anyway, thank you, Laura. We love you, too. Um, (laughs) Since this episode is going to be coming out over Labor Day, we're going to talk about women in the labor movement, um, both throughout history and some modern day, current event kind of stuff. Um, There's a couple things I wanted to say before we get into this. For starters, this episode is not meant to enforce the gender binary in a way that's like, women in labor do this and men do this. Um, But the labor movement is often painted as this white male movement which is really far from the truth so we're just trying to highlight all of the cool things that people who are not white men have done which is a lot Uh, from the beginning women have played a major role in the labor movement although they rarely receive proper credit or appreciation women were amongst the first workers to start unionizing although many forms of feminized labor have been historically and presently excluded from the labor movement including sex work care work and other forms of reproductive labor But that's not to say that folks in those professions have not done a lot of amazing organizing, which we'll talk about in this episode as well. So in honor of Labor Day, which was originally referred to as Working Men's Day, (laughs) let's talk about all of the badass women of the labor movement. Wow. I realized I did not read that before you did. And I was like, my literal reaction was, ew. And then I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that I li- I wrote you next to it in the document. Yes. <laughs> like my my genuine reaction was ill. <laughs> um I also just wanted to add before we jump into some specific examples that there is a history of which like we see continued today like into today's discourse on women striking that women shouldn't be so vocal about their needs in the workplace. Like we literally have still have people who think that women shouldn't be in the workplace. Someone in my family, I will not say who, uh, said that he thinks that there is unemployment in the United States because women are in the workforce. (laughs) Like what the fuck? Okay. I, but I love this quote from mother Jones that says, whatever the fight, don't be ladylike. And like literally, I hate even the term ladylike. It makes me want to, like, vomit into a million toilets. But, like, (laughs) fuck whatever the hell society considers to be ladylike. Uh, Women are badasses, and we don't need permission from some man or anyone else to be exactly who we need to be. Ladylike. 
<laughs> oh my goodness. Is it, you know what I just, you just reminded me of when I was, when I was like a teenager, like a young teenager, maybe 13 or 14, I had, um, she's, uh, not my aunt. She's just someone I knew growing up. Um, another Assyrian lady, she, she, she told me, um, you know, you shouldn't blow your nose in public because I was blowing what? my nose because it was running. Um, <laughs> so I have had problems with allergies my whole life. And she's like, you shouldn't do that in public. And I was like, why? She's like, it's not ladylike. Ladies should go somewhere private and oh my god and blow their nose i'm like but what if i can't get somewhere private and have to do it right now yeah i was so confused by her question i'm like i don't understand the things that you're saying to me (laughs) (laughs) oh Oh, my god yeah that's also why whenever someone like burps while we're recording i'm like leave that in women can be gross (laughs) leave it in yeah (laughs) oh my god so yes laura thank you for all of that um, to get started, we have kind of a list of notable events and actions led by women throughout history, more or less in chronological order. Um, a lot of this is American history, but there are some some other events thrown in, too. Yeah, I mean, this um, is obviously- definitely, like, U.S.-centric, which is good to yeah. note. Yeah, totally. So the first one I wanted to start with is the first union of working women in American history – which, towards the start of the Industrial Revolution, women were hired to tend power looms in New England factories, which made them some of the first workers that were exposed to the, like, very dangerous conditions of industrial workplaces. So, in the 1830s, women working in textile mills in Lowell, Massachusetts, Massachusetts began to protest the poor working conditions and low wages. This, it gained national attention in 1834 when their pay cuts led them to walk out and strike. By 1846, this turned into the Lowell Female Labor Reform Association, which lobbied for 10-hour workdays, which sounds like a lot now, but at the time, they were working 14-hour days, so that was actually a really big improvement. Um, That reminds me, I actually saw a headline once from, I think it was a Lithuanian newspaper from like 1915 or 1916 or something, and translated it with something like, Lithuanian workers strike for a... um, 14-hour workday because they were working 17 hours a day. Yeah, yeah. Um, Anyway, so (laughs) (laughs) um, let's talk about the Radium Girls. So the Radium Girls are um, this this thing I found out about recently, actually, from a friend of mine um, who's reading a book about it. So apparently around the First World War, hundreds of young women and girls worked as dial painters at the United States Radium Corporation in uh, Newark and Orange, New Jersey. And another one later sprung up here in Illinois in in a place called Ottawa for the Radium Dial Company. So they would paint these like glow in the dark kind of like uh, faces of dials, um, mostly for the war effort back then, like the dials that go on all types of equipment um, and after the war for other consumer goods. So... Um, these women were taught to do this in a very specific way. They were taught uh, something called lip, dip, and paint. To keep the fine tip on the brush, they oh, would like lick the, yeah, <laughs> you already can see where this is going. Oh um, they would lick the paintbrush, right, the radium-laced uh, paint. They would dip it, and they would um, paint the dial. The job mm. was considered very glamorous because it paid more than, most of their jobs in the area available to women. Um, and because like, it was kind of cool, like they were painting these like glowy glow in the dark, you know, faces on these dials. Um, 
It should be noted that the lab workers in the facilities handling the paint were given protective gear, but the dial painters, again, mostly women, if not all women, were not. So after a few years, the first round of uh, dial painters started to get sick, right? First woman died at the age of 22. Most of the women that died, like 90% of them were under the age of 25 by the time they were dead. Um, the doctors and the dentists who treated her, and I say dentists because, um, well, because they were eating the radium paint, um, a lot of the problems started in their mouths, right, with their gums and their teeth and their throats and jaws and teeth were literally, were literally falling off of these otherwise healthy young women. Oh um, so they couldn't figure out what's wrong with her. And they told her family she died of syphilis. Uh, so that was the first woman that died. So a 22-year-old unmarried a century ago, her family being told, oh, your daughter died of a sexually transmitted disease. Um, so they, you know, they were trying to figure out why these healthy women started having like tooth decay and gum pain and bleeding, losing all their teeth, abscesses never healing. All this stuff was happening to all these women. It killed hundreds of women. Um, they were basically eating this paint, right? And it, okay. it, it ate through their jaws. And since it also just went into directly into like their bones and their bloodstream, they started getting afflicted with other problems, knee problems, hip problems, like back problems, all these other things were being misdiagnosed as other things, arthritis, rheumatism, whatever. Um, for some women, it actually like shortened their bones. So they, they would grow and like one leg wouldn't grow as long as the other one. Um, the founder, the founder of the company, uh, Sabin von Schake was his name. He also ended up dying by radium poisoning. Uh, he knew relatively early on that it was not a great idea to ingest radium and passively told one of the women to, quote, stop doing that when he saw her lip, um, lip painting. But, like, they were still trained to do it that way. And since it can take a very long time, like years for radium poisoning to show itself, many of these women were afflicted years after they stopped working. Um, there were virtually no workers' comp laws at the time. Uh, that's, you know, um, that stated that the statute of limitations on grievances ended like a, a few months after the fact and all this stuff. So the first woman to successfully push a case forward was only able to do so because the federal law at the time was two years. It wasn't until multiple women fell fatally ill, their lives and the lives of their families ruined financially to the, from the doctor's bills, that doctors and scientists from Harvard started taking notice. And after testing concluded it was due to radium. It was like they figured it out. So one of these women was the first person whose remains were tested for radioactivity. It came to the point that the surviving uh, women were noted on a list of doom um, because the they basically all knew their sentence. They were all going to die. And they, along with one lawyer in New Jersey, mounted a case to sue the U.S. Radium Corporation for damages. So later on, their boss... Um, Von Schnacki, what a name, flipped sides and started working, Schnacki, it's just perfect. Um, you know, he kind of like, was like, no, you're right, he started to side with the women. Um, he wasn't head of the company anymore at that point, and he was also tested as highly radio radioactive. Um, one of the lab techs dropped dead, like, basically it set the precedent, this, this case set the precedent for a lot of employees later on to be able to sue their employers for damages. Um, and yeah, if they had only had a union uh, or any types of labor protections back then, maybe it would have been caught sooner or, and a lot of them would have survived. Okay. So really fucking quick. 
Uh, one of my close friends had a band in college called the Radium Girls, and oh my god! Now oh my I'm god. like, what the fuck? <laughs> Do they know? Do they know? Have they been? Told? I have no idea. I need. I need to know. But yeah, I don't I really talk to those people anymore. I mean, it's been like over a decade. But like, what the fuck? <laughs> oh my god! Wow. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> No, I didn't know about that until um, we were texting yesterday. And then it actually has like a lot of eerie similarities to the later on Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, which we'll get to. But first, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, continuing in kind of chronological order, this is one of my favorite. I think this is really cool. Um, The Atlanta's Washerwomen Strike. So with the onset of industrialization, people, mostly white people, started to own more and more clothes because they were being mass-produced in, yeah, in a way that they were not previously. Mm -hmm. So as people started owning more clothes and, like, the nuclear family, they started outsourcing the laundry. And many of the laundresses were black women who had recently been freed from slavery. So they worked really long hours. Their wages ranged from 2 to $4 a month, no, sorry, four to eight dollars a month, which is really not that much better. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, oops, double, two more dollars. <laughs> and those wages changed very little over time. And the laundresses would increase their earnings by adding on clients or getting help from their children. The laundresses worked mostly in their own homes or in their neighborhoods with other women. In the summer of 1881, 20 laundresses met to form a train a trade union organization called the Washington Society to fight for better labor conditions. Within three weeks, it went from 20 workers to 3,000 strikers. Damn. After a lot of back and forth between the municipality, the government got involved and, you know, we're obviously trying to, like, talk them down. Right. Um, but they were very um, persevered. And the laundresses won better wages and working conditions. And those strikes really inspired other black women workers who were mostly cooks, maids, nurses, and hotel workers to go on strike. And that was really monumental for black women in the South to be empowering and made them have a lot more rights in the workplace. (sighs) Fucking strikes, man. Gets me all emotional. (laughs) I know. <laughs> um, okay, so yes, I want to fangirl over one of my fave all-time labor women. Um, she was born in 1853. Her name was Lucy Parsons. She's a badass. Um, so she, along with her husband, Albert Parsons, they um, founded the International Working People's Association, or IWPA. Lucy was also a badass socialist, anarcho-communist, a labor organizer. Ugh. Wrote labor organizer twice because she's just so good. Anyway. Like you're labor organizer and an incredible labor organizer. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. She's a badass. Uh, so that was in 1883 that she founded that. And then in 1900, um, the... International Ladies Garment Workers Union, or ILGWU, is formed by the amalgamation of seven local unions, and Lucy Parsons was a key organizer for that new union. 
Then in 1905, the Industrial Workers of the World was founded with the help of Lucy Parsons, a.k.a. she's just like literally fucking shit up in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. In 1915, she organizes the Chicago Hunger Demonstrations, pushing the AFL Socialist Party and Jane's Adams, Jane Adams's whole house to participate in huge a huge demonstration around class struggles, poverty, and unemployment. So she shaped how women in particular, but also um, how people in general organize around labor in the United States. And she was a woman of color. Like, she was just like a badass. Oh, God, love her. That's amazing. Um, So the American Federation of Labor, we've all heard of them, the AFL. Um, So even though women had been contributing to the movement, the labor movement for 50 years, in 1886, the American Federation of Labor was founded and its first president, Samuel Gompers, denied membership to women, which who is even a little surprised by that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) None of our listeners, that's for damn sure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, It wasn't until 1903 that the Women's Trade uh, Union League was formed at an AFL convention, which was the first national association for for organizing working women. Um, That same year, Mary Harris Jones, a notable organizer nicknamed, maybe you've heard of her, Mother Jones, led a... (laughs) Mother Jones, have you heard of her? (laughs) Have you heard of her even? Um, Led a 125-mile march of child workers to expose the child abuse that occurred fa- occurred in factories. Here's a question that I have. Yeah. As a mother of two children, I'm curious what she did to get them to march 125 miles. Because mine <laughs> don't even want to walk to the park. That's amazing. Well, maybe if match. your children were literally enslaved in child labor, they would be like, yeah, if I could just stop motivated. doing that. Like... <laughs> Yeah. 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 You're right. You're right. Yeah. Put them work in a factory. Yeah. But then we're going to factory and then they'll do whatever you say to get out of it. Maybe I'll just tell them the story and be like, see, see how kids used to be. You guys don't even. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's she's amazing. Yeah. Um, Now we're going to talk about the Paris Commune (laughs) of 1871. The times leading up to the Paris Commune were difficult for all workers, but particularly for women. It was typical at that time for women to work 13-hour days, six days a week, and their wages could barely cover a living cost. Like, oh, God. (laughs) I was just, sorry, I just, like... I was just thinking about how this is still obviously true. Like, we work way too much. Like, we don't need to be working as much as we are, and we can barely do it. And then I was thinking about Dolly Parton's absolute anthem, working nine to five, what a way to make a living, barely getting by. It's all taking and no giving. Yep. Yep. It's a rich man's game, no matter what they call it. Yep. Comrade Dolly. She knows what's up. She fucking knows what's up. But, like, back to the Paris County. (laughs) Uh... Women formed the Union des Femmes, which had its first meeting on April 11th, my birthday, after an appeal to the women citizens of (laughs) Paris was put on the walls of the city and published in the papers. The Union des Femmes was made up of working class women and was part of the first international. It was organized around citywide associations and a paid executive committee. All positions were democratically elected and recallable by the union members. Working class women during this time organized secular schools, ambulance services, and work cooperatives. 
They also took up arms to fight for the revolution and defend it with their lives. Yeah, French women are badass. Hell yeah. yeah. So in college for my senior thesis class for gender studies, we were like in groups. So I was with two other people and we had to like peer review and edit each other's theses. And this um, one girl I was working with, her entire thesis was about the Paris Commune. And the part of it that was talking about how the Paris, the revolution leading up to the Paris Commune was sparked by women. And I just remember in the notes on like the margin, I just wrote, yay, women. And that, then that just kind of was like our joke because she thought it was really funny that that was like my editing note. <laughs> <laughs> yay, women. Because <laughs> I was just like, oh, I never knew that. Oh, yeah. But yeah, so Paris Commune was dope, albeit short-lived. Moving on, back, back over to the U.S. was... In 1909, the uprising of 20,000, which was sparked by a young Jewish immigrant whose name was Clara Zemlich, and she made a speech in Yiddish, which I didn't know that part. I thought that was really cool because my grandparents spoke Yiddish, and it's like a really important um, language for Eastern European Jews that who were ghettoized, and it's basically not really existent as a language anymore, and I just really liked that part of this story. Yeah. So, she made her speech in Yiddish at a garment workers meeting, which galvanized folks into what became a massive and ultimately successful strike. 20,000 workers followed Clara into the streets of New York for what became a two-month strike. Mm. The strikers were predominantly women and were even supported by professional organizers and women of various classes through the National Women's Trade Union League and the International Ladies Garments Workers Union. They ended up winning many concessions of wages and working conditions. Oh, my God. Yes. And this brings me to the related event, which you've probably heard of, um, if not only because I mentioned it earlier, the <laughs> Triangle Service Factory Fire. So Clara, who gave that speech that started the uprising of 20,000, um, worked at Triangle Shirtwaist, which did not sign on to the reforms that were won by that uprising because the owners were pieces of shit, which you will see why in a second. So in New York City on March 25th in 1911 was the deadliest industrial disaster in the history of the city, causing 146 garment worker deaths in one factory. Most of the victims were recent immigrants, um, mostly Italians and Eastern European Jewish immigrants. Of the 146 who died, 123 were women. Prior to the fire, the company owners, who were both men, stood firmly against unions. They were obviously against the previous uprising, and they <laughs> had really bad working conditions. On uh, so 120,000 people marched in the funeral procession for the women who died in that fire, and another 230,000 watched the march. The case ended up going to criminal court, and an all-male group of jurors acquitted the company owners of manslaughter, saying that there was no concrete proof that they were negligent. And what is honestly fucking crazy about this story is that because the factory was insured, the bosses collected $400 per victim, and they did not share that with the surviving workers or the heirs of the victims. They just fucking kept it. <laughs> um, 
So following that fire, New York State passed 30 new labor laws, including minimum wage, maximum hours, workplace conditions, and more child labor. This is a really important example, I think, as it was the Radium Girls that we talked about, of how in order to bring about change, women often have to have our suffering ignored. And in this case, and the Radium Girls case, until women literally die to be taken seriously. So Rose Schneiderman, who is famous for the quote, you've definitely heard, the worker deserves bread, but she deserves roses too, has another less famous but equally powerful quote about the fire, which I wanted to read, which goes, out of their martyrdom came new concept of social responsibility and labor legislation that have helped make American working conditions the finest in the world. Um, Not anymore, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But... I just I think it's really important to point out the yeah. martyrdom of women in all of these. Of course. Uh, movements. Wow. Speaking of bread and roses, uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you like my segues? Yes. Yeah. I'm trying. Okay. Um, speaking of bread and roses, in 1912, uh, immigrant women left their mark on the labor movement by organizing the bread and roses strike in, um, I believe, Lawrence, Massachusetts, which brought. 23,000 men, women, and children on strike with 20,000 of them on the picket lines, tens of thousands of people on the picket line um, that year. The same year, Massachusetts established the first minimum wage law, which extended to women and children. It's really weird to like be happy that a minimum wage law passed for children, but here we are. Um, <laughs> yep. But yay, I guess. Uh, It was also the year the Department of Labor was born, although it wasn't until 1920 uh, that it added the Women's Bureau. Mm. Yeah. History is fucked. I mean, like, it's it's bad. It's bad out there, folks. Okay. Um, Now we're going to talk about something outside of the United States, which was the Petrograd Women's Strike. Um, as was written in Jacobin, quote, women were not just the spark of the Russian revolution, but the motor that drove it forward, unquote. On International Women's Day of 1917, textile workers in Petrograd went on strike and went from factory to factory calling on other workers to join them. They engaged in many violent clashes with police and military along the way. The women factory workers insisted that male workers join them as well and ultimately led the February Revolution, which ended Tsarism. Tsarism is what I meant to say. (laughs) Many men at the time thought that the International Women's Day protests were premature and that they should all wait for the quote-unquote skilled workers, so which were men, apparently, to take lead. Um, after the revolution, women were mostly erased from the movement and men took charge. And we all know how that turned out. Um, I would also (laughs) say that like women had many, many roles in the Russian revolution. Um, I highly recommend the book called October. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the author right now, but, uh, essentially like it goes, in chronological order leading up to the Russian Revolution and the stuff like immediately thereafter. And it's written by a guy who mostly writes novels. So it's like actual historical fact, but it reads like a novel. It's really good. Anyway. Um, I'm actually reading it now. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> yeah. Amazing. 
It's it's by uh, China Mieville. I don't know if I say his oh, name yeah. right. But, yeah, that's right. Um, it is it is extreme. It's it is really written like a like a novel. It's written like a fiction story, but it's nonfiction. Um, and yeah. it makes uh, it does talk a lot about women and their roles in the um, February, March, and October revolution. Exactly. Uh, revolutions. Because there were moments that like women literally put their lives on the line in that same way that Zoe was talking about, like that martyrdom. And because they knew that the police wouldn't just like openly shoot at them, which was a risk they took because the police totally could have. But that did end up making like men be able to sneak into the house like that moved things forward. Like there was a whole there were many, many roles that women played. And also like one of the women who was captured and was up in um, the like camp way up north in Siberia was like like murdered this dude so that people could be free like there's just a bunch of badasses yep (laughs) anyway russian women we see you yeah totally another another person in my gender studies thesis class wrote about the like women's day the history of international women's day and wrote very much about the Petrograd women's strike. So that's how I know everything, basically. (laughs) Yes. So coming back over to the United States, um, wanted to talk about the Women's Pay Act of 1945, which was the first legislation that would have required equal pay for women. Though FDR received the credit for it, it was due in part, probably in large part, to Frances Perkins, who was the first female Secretary of Labor and the first woman ever given a cabinet position. She had been an observer and advocate during the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire and was involved in a lot of other strikes prior to being appointed. So she is the real American hero of the story. Just to give some examples (laughs) of all of the cool things that she did that FDR gets credit for, she... Um, introduced many aspects of the New Deal, including Civilian Conservation Corps, Public Works Administration, Federal Works Agency, and the labor portion of the National Industrial Recovery Act. She established unemployment benefits, pensions for many uncovered elderly Americans, and welfare. She pushed to reduce workplace accidents and helped craft laws against child labor. Through the Fair Labor Standards Act, she established the first minimum wage and overtime laws for American workers. She also defined the 40-hour work week. She formed government policy for working with labor unions and helped to alleviate strikes by way of the United States Conciliation Services. So, Frances did a fucking lot. Yeah, she did. That's the girl. Yeah, she did. <laughs> so, jumping ahead, obviously, a lot of other things happened, but we have an hour, so. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> jumping ahead to the 70s, um, although sex work is often excluded from the labor movement, There is a long history of sex workers organizing, forming unions, forming other collectives, and demanding rights. So there's a lot of examples of this, but I wanted to talk about International Whores Day, which was founded in 1975. It started in France when 100 sex workers occupied a church in Lyon. Is it Lyon, France? Yeah. For an eight-day strike. This was alongside women in five other French cities that also occupied, quote-unquote, sacred spaces. Um, So churches and cathedrals and you know you know what a sacred space means <laughs> and yeah. they did that to speak out against police brutality of sex workers so that's why every year on that day it's um 
yeah, an ode to their work and to the continued fight of sex workers, which we aren't talking about a ton in this episode, but I at least wanted to point out that they have been excluded from the labor movement a lot and have also done a lot for the labor movement. Fuck yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, let's do a little snapshot of more current events, uh, jumping ahead even more, um, uh, overseas and talk about what's going on with women's labor movements abroad today. Um, I wanted to start with Bangladesh, uh, because many of us remember, well, we've talked so much about garment workers this episode already. And, and I think this is a nice tie in. Um, many of us remember that in like the last 10 years or so, there've been at least two devastating workplace tragedies that took a lot of Bangladeshi women's lives. Um, the Tazreen fire in 2012 and the collapse of the Rana factory plaza in 2013. These two, uh, the Rana plaza factory killed about 1200 women, mm. which is a lot of women. I mean, that is so many people. Um, the Tazreen fire killed, I think a hundred or 150. Um, and at the time, much of the international coverage of this event was having to listen to, quote, responsible corporate citizens like H&M um, and other major, major clothing retailers pledge to, like, upgrade safety standards and make sure, like, all these factories that they were um, using for their slave wage labor uh, were, like, up to safety codes or whatever, as though they didn't, as though that wasn't specifically why they chose these factories, right? Because it was so cheap to manufacture their clothes there, um, you know. But what was happening on the ground that we didn't hear about so much were women organizing for labor unions. Um, prior to this, unions were essentially illegal uh, there, and a new labor law introduced in 2013. Um, made them easier to form. So now there are hundreds of labor unions there, although they only capture about 4% of the total garment workforce, which is in the millions. Um, like, I think 4 million uh, women work in that industry alone in Bangladesh. Um, earlier this year, nearly half the unionized workers, so about 50,000 garment workers, mostly women went on strike demanding better wages and benefits. And they got some concessions, but a lot of them lost their jobs. and. Solidarity actions are like ongoing yeah. even now. Um, in Ugh. Brazil, I know, I know, it never ends. <laughs> Can I? Okay, so I know that this might be like a one-on-one thing, but I just want to take a quick step back and like explain mm-hmm. like the basis of the race to the bottom a little bit, like yeah. just like like you know, if you might be listening as a listener and you're like, well, why the hell do we even have factories in these places? Um, but part of the design of globalized capitalism is this thing called the race to the bottom. Um, and what's happening is that because there are essentially no borders on our globalized trade, as well as like, um, you know, where products are sourced from, where they're actually manufactured, all of that stuff. Um, what's happening is, so originally, or like when we kind of opened things up to global trade, most of our garments were still being made in China. Like everything was made in China. You had that kind of like mantra stuck into your head. And then Chinese people started organizing and fought for higher wages and, then those corporations moved their businesses to other countries, now places like Bangladesh still, um, where it's cheaper labor costs. So these corporations, because they're not beholden to any actual border, they are able to kind of move and like uproot like hundreds of thousands of jobs um, to different countries. Um, 
And it's in, like, the state's best interest under globalized capitalism to also punish workers for striking, for organizing, for higher wages, because those states are also beholden to these, like, large global entities like the IMF and whatever, where they want these wages to to stay in their country rather than having a corporation move to another place. But this is all I'm realizing we have to explain on another episode, but it's just like, <laughs> I think it's important when we're thinking about like why, you know, it's important for us to understand this on a global level. Like if we are to understand neoliberal globalized capitalism at all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these places are nothing but, uh, you know, countries that are nothing more than cheap labor for a lot of these multinational corporations. It's why international labor solidarity is so important, right? It's not really, an, it, it, they would rather pit us against other workers elsewhere, but the solution of course is to not have exploited workers anywhere. Right. So they have nowhere to run and hide. Um, and it's, it's a pattern you see all over, all over the place. So um, in Brazil, much like the unions representing uh, mostly women in Bangladesh, there is no gender parity in union leadership. Um, and the garment workers, again, mostly women, the garment workers unions are demanding this change. Um, in Iraq, a new labor law defines and outlaws sexual harassment in the workplace. This is a big deal because um, in Iraq, it's, a, it's where my family is from, um, you know, even reacting at all to sexual harassment has generally been considered taboo. Like you're not even supposed to react to the fact that it's happening. Otherwise, you know, it invites more. Um, and in Sri Lanka, a garment workers union formed last year from a women's labor advocacy group sort of evolved into a union. And it's fighting to end exactly this type of sexual harassment at work because women in garment factories there complain about the sexual harassment they get from the male workers around them for like what one of the things that happens, I guess, is when, when engineers come to fix their machines, who, who are generally men, um, they harass them. They like touch them inappropriately and harass them. And if they complained, the engineers wouldn't fix their machines and they wouldn't be able to work. So there's this like, th there's labor exploitation and there's, there's this layer of gender oppression um, over it. Um, in Morocco this year, Women who make up half of the country's largest uh, industry sector, uh, the agricultural workers, want a contract that enshrined their rights because, like everywhere else, they were not being paid as much as men for doing the same job. Um, men were also allowed to perform some jobs that weren't allowed to women, setting them up for like setting the men up for raises and bonuses and all that stuff that women then didn't have access to. Teachers in Morocco also went on strike this year. Um, again, also uh, mostly women um, in the capital to demand their yearly renewable contracts become permanent civil service contracts, because with a civil service contract, a civil servant contract, you get uh, really good benefits um, like with uh, with other public sector workers. And right now they're treated as sort of contractors to be renewed each year. Um, the protests and strikes happened earlier this year. They continued for about a month. And I think they want a pay raise, but I don't think they've actually won a permanent contract the way they wanted um, so domestic workers in Ukraine in June of this year, uh, domestic and child care workers fought and won the first union in that sector. So there is now an official domestic and child care workers union in Ukraine where there wasn't before. Um, they have the same rights to all other unionized workers in the country. In Mexico this year, same thing. Domestic workers won legislation that protects them with contracts, uh, vacation time and bonuses. Um, 
you know, everywhere we look around the world, even here in the United States, labor is fighting back. And when we look a little more closely, we see the same gender-based struggles, even within these labor struggles that women must endure, you know, being exploited labor and then being exploited labor as a woman, um, as a way to really add insult to injury. Yeah, totally. I also wanted to bring up another thing from this year. Um, in Switzerland, it was the 28th anniversary of the first national work stoppage of women in Switzerland. And they did yet another nationwide strike of women workers, which took a year of planning. But ultimately, thousands of women went on strike, including trade unions, university staff members, students, church groups, and female farmers. And they wrote a manifesto for um, the organizers of it wrote a manifesto, and I just wanted to read the first sentence of that, mm-hmm. which says, which goes, on June 14th, we strike a paid work strike, a domestic work strike, a care strike, a school strike, and a consumer strike, so that our work becomes visible, so that our demands are understood, so that the public's fear becomes something for all women. Mm. And I thought that was just like a really great summary of a lot of the shit we've been talking about. So wanted to yeah. share that. Yeah, fuck yeah. I think, like, that's, like, you know, when we had Jane McAlevey on, um, as well as even Sarah Jaffe, and when we talked to Chinzia Aruza um, at the Philly live recording, I, these are all, like, incredible either labor writers or labor organizers or academics, and they all kind of debunk this idea of a women's strike as a bourgeois concept, Um, You know, libs are always going to go on about how they would like love to strike but need to work or whatever the fuck. But like across Europe and in our own labor history and all over the world, these types of things have worked like we know strikes work. It's the pretty much the only thing that we know is like strikes work. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like every time. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Ugh. (laughs) So... Going into a, a, a less uplifting topic, um, I wanted to address that as Walida was bringing up in talking about how there's these gender-based struggles within the labor movement. There are issues that affect women workers that don't affect men, such as discrimination and harassment. So domestic work, such as nannying, housekeeping, and providing childcare is done by women 95% of the time. We know this. Um, This is considered women's work. It lacks the employment protections of other industries, which leaves those workers unprotected by the laws for minimum wage, time off, sexual harassment, and the right to unionize. The lack of protections um, there lead domestic workers to being a significant industry for labor trafficking. We have also seen this through the Me Too movement, how many industries have this problem, and similar to what Lara was saying about the women's strike being painted as this, like, bourgeois, like, lib thing, I think the Me Too movement gets kind of as two faces, where there's the Me Too movement we mainly saw online, which is celebrities and, you know, people that have the privilege of having their voices heard. But there were also women speaking out, working class women facing harassment um, in many industries that don't get that kind of attention when we did the service industry episode with Charlotte, we talked about how working in service, women working in the service industry have the highest rate of being harassed while at work, which is just to say there are a lot of labor issues that affect women differently and more than they affect 
men. And I think that's part of why we see women on the forefront of all of these movements. Mm. (sighs) Yeah, it's intense. Um, A 2010 survey in the California Central Valley reported that 80% of women who do farm work had experienced sexual harassment or assault on the job. Organizers such as Monica Ramirez at Justice for Migrant Women are working to combat sexual assault in the farm industry. In 2018, more than 7,700 Unite Here hotel workers across the country from Boston to Chicago to Honolulu went unstriked for improved health care, higher wages, and protection from sexual harassment on the job. As Unite Here notes, women, people of color, and immigrants make up the majority of its membership. The voices leading the chants on their picket lines also were overwhelmingly those of women. Um, harassment in the workplace has been something that women have been working against in their unionizing efforts for decades. And it pretty much was left out of the unionizing discourse before that, um, which is really obnoxious. And some like, you know, other current events kind of on this, like on like a positive note. (laughs) So, you know, if we think about like the latest sweep of strikes over the last five years or so. You know, the flight attendant strike, there was a bunch of stuff that were related to flight attendants. Um, The teacher strikes in multiple states across the United States. The nurse strikes, all of these were led by women in fields that were predominantly women. Women are strikers. We think of the labor movement. And, like, you know, when I was active in DSA, I think of, like, the labor branch. And it's, like, a lot of those people were like dudes because a lot of people still think of the labor movement as that. That might not be the same in every chapter, but I think that there is like this idea of people in unions being contractors and carpenters and stuff like that. Um, but the biggest unions in our country are run by women and are getting the goods around the world. Strikes in like all different countries have made major shifts happen in the last year. Um, women and particularly indigenous women are also the ones on the front lines in frontline communities, and what I mean by that is areas that have the highest risks for environmental catastrophe. So we see women putting their lives on the line to stop massive corporations from continuing their monstrous stuff. Um, the videos that went viral about the Amazon fires were led by women. The Standing Rock movement was led by women. And while we wouldn't consider it this, like a typical strike, I would consider it a organizing movement that happened in a way that women were using their labor for the good of all. And obviously there are men involved, but it was predominantly women of color leading these movements. Yep. I love a strike. Hell yeah. I'd love to see a strike. (laughs) I want to shout out to the AT&T workers currently on strike. Um, Hotel workers here in Chicago that are on strike. And a special shout out to the (laughs) Chicago Teachers Union, which is about to go on strike. Um, Hell yeah. Strike, 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 strike. (laughs) Um, I'll be on the lines. I'll be on the lines out here. And I encourage all of our listeners to join a picket line. Um, it is exhilarating. It's awesome to stand in solidarity with fellow workers. And it really shows you the power of labor. Absolutely. Hell yeah. Happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day, bitches. (laughs) Happy Labor Day, bitch. (laughs) Wow. Incredible. Uh, Yeah. Well, I'm fucking jazzed up as shit right now. Um, That was great. I also like, I love when we have guests on because our guests are amazing and incredible and I learn so much from them. But I also love when it's just us like talking about shit. 
I'm going to yeah. just start yeah. and end this with yeah. me telling you guys <laughs> that I love you. Um, <laughs> yay. Yay. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, as always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at season of the bee. Um, you can send us an email season of the bee at gmail.com. You can, uh, we have a campaign going on right now, a chuffed campaign where you can donate monies because I edit our lovely podcast and my computer has been getting the spinny wheel of death and it's really, really bad. And I'm scared it's going to die any second now. And if you could donate just to our campaign, it's in the profile of our Instagram. Um, and we've been, we should put it on the description for this episode. Oh, we'll put it in the description for this episode. And, uh, but please, please, please help us out with that because we want to be able to continue to push out this content. Um, and you can find us on Facebook, I guess. <laughs> you can uh, <laughs> give us money on Patreon as well. And you can uh, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. I think you got it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day weekend, everybody. Oh, love you guys. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bitch. Oh.